We now come to the point of our worship, really the high point, which is to open God's word again. But instead of just read it, it's to read it and explain it. Read it and apply it. And this morning we are continuing in our exposition of this great epistle, this great letter to the Romans that the Apostle Paul wrote. If you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, not just inspired in the sense of having positive thoughts or good feelings, but literally the words of God are being written here by Paul to the church. The church in Rome, yes, but also to us. As the epistles of all the Bible, the epistles apply most directly to us as Christians today. The whole Bible applies to us, of course, but we have to do less work in the epistles to get it into our context to understand and apply. And so this morning we are in Romans 11, 1 to 6. The title of the message you'll see in the passage where I get this title, Has God Rejected Israel? Has God Rejected Israel? Let me read the passage to you first. I like to read it, then explain it, then apply it. That is exposition. Romans 11 starting. Let's go back one verse to get the context. So important, especially when we get to Romans 11, that we get the context right. So he ended, and we were here last week, but he ended chapter 10 with this. But as for Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. I say then, has God rejected his people? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in this passage about Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In this way then, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice has also come to be. But if it is by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What a wonderful passage. A passage that should encourage us, motivate us, move us, not only to be thankful for God's faithfulness, but to see God work through his promises to Israel to save those who are unbelieving in Israel. In fact, in the early 1800s, evangelism to the Jews really got going at a higher level than it had been before in the Reformed Protestant churches. In fact, this happened in Scotland, where evangelism to the Jews began to flourish. What had begun then in Scotland spread throughout all the British Empire. Missionaries were sent out to Israel, to even Geneva, and they were evangelizing the Jews. This thrust sprung from the interest of Robert Haldane, Thomas Chalmers, and men like Robert Candlish, Robert Murray Machane, yes, the one that we often go through the yearly Bible reading plan, Andrew and Horatius Bonar. In fact, Machane even decided to go to Israel and take a tour of the Holy Land at the same time, preach to the Jews, and get ready to send missionaries to Israel. And this is in the early 1800s. During that period, the British Society for the Propagation of the Gospel amongst the Jews, founded in 1809, was flourishing, and it received support even from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon had his own ministry in his church to the Jews, 
And it was to go about the area that the church was located in, do good deeds for the Jews, help them, help the poor, but also to evangelize them. Again, all of this started because of this chapter, because of what the Bible says, but particularly the understanding that these men had about Romans chapter 11 and the future salvation of the Jews, that all Israel would be saved. The more immediate result was the conversion of Hebrew Christians, such as Alfred Edersheim. Alfred Edersheim wrote all of these books after he was converted. He was a Jew. He comes to Christ because he hears the gospel from these Scottish Presbyterians. And he comes to Christ, he begins to study the scriptures, and then write about the context of ancient Palestine, of ancient Israel. And Jesus, his life, he has a great book. We have it in the bookstore called The Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. And it's all about Jesus in the Hebrew context. He wrote many books that are still used today to study the life of Christ. David Barron, who started the Hebrew Christian Testimony to Israel Missionary Organization, and Adolf Safir, who began as a Presbyterian missionary after he was converted and went out to evangelize the Jews. All of this as a result of understanding the gospel, yes, and understanding what the Bible has to say about the salvation of the Jews. That's what we're looking at today in chapter 11. And not just today, but in the coming weeks as we move through chapter 11. There is a high point that you'll see in a moment in chapter 11. And Paul's going to build up to that argument. It's in 11, 25, 26, and 27. And he's going to carefully lay out his argument as to this question. His answer to the question, has God rejected Israel? It's an important study. And it's here in the Bible for a reason. It's in the book of Romans. It's in the letter that Paul wrote to a mostly Gentile church here in Rome. And he wants them to understand this. He wants the Jews who read it to understand this, both believing Jews and unbelieving Jews. To remind you where we're at in the book of Romans, we're in that fourth major section of Romans, the defense of the gospel. This is talking about God's election, talking about Israel and God's promises. Chapters 9, 10, and 11. He's defending the gospel. And he gives the question that he's addressing all the way back in chapter 9. Look at 9, 6. To get our bearings here, 9, 6 is the question that Romans 9, 10, and 11 is all about. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So the, the big issue is what about Israel? Has God's promises failed to them? And Paul begins in Romans 9 saying, look, not all of Israel has been chosen by God. Not all the Jews are the, the true Israel, meaning the believing Israel there. He's not injecting Gentiles there. He's just saying, of all the Jews, there are some that God has chosen to save in the present time and all throughout history. And so chapter 9 becomes a lesson on God's sovereignty in salvation, election, predestination. And that's the first answer Paul gives. He says, hold on, don't get upset that God hasn't fulfilled his promises. He has. In fact, he's doing so right now, but he does it to those that he has chosen to save. And so chapter 9, we can't skip over that answer. It is important, but that's the first part of the answer. The next part is in chapter 10. Look, Israel is not all saved yet because they haven't believed. They haven't believed. It's their responsibility. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God chooses, but man is also responsible. Both of those truths are important 
to hold and to believe. They're in the Bible. God is sovereign. God chooses whom he will have compassion on. God chooses whom he will show his mercy and grace to. But man is responsible to believe when they hear the gospel. Now in chapter 11, he speaks of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. There's three answers and they they really just keep building up here. God's election, that's a strong answer. Man's responsibility, that's a strong answer. And now this is all about God's faithfulness in chapter 11. God's promises. So chapter 11 here, it's important for many reasons, not the least of which is that it is a prophecy about what is to come when we get to 11, 25 through 29. Let's at least read that to get the context. Again, we're not even in the passage today that we're looking at yet, but I want to skip ahead a bit and show you where we're going, where Paul's going in this chapter. 11:25. for I do not want you brothers to be uninformed of this mystery. I don't want you Christians to be uninformed of this mystery. Now, a mystery is something that was hidden before, but is now revealed. It's not like we use the word mystery today. Sometimes people read this in the Bible and they say, oh, well, it's a mystery. Forget about it. We can't even understand it, Paul. No, no. Paul is saying it was a mystery in the Old Testament, but now he is revealing it. Here it is. So that, he says, you will not be wise in your own estimation. Christians, you you can be prideful. You can be boastful. Here's the mystery. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until God brings in all the elect of the Gentiles, Israel is hardened. And in verse 26, and so when all the Gentiles have come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's where we're going. That's Paul's goal. He's going to start with himself in this section today. And he's going to work up to the whole nation of Israel being saved. One of those men that I told you about earlier, Horatius Bonar, Scottish Reformed Presbyterian in the 1800s said, the prophecies concerning Israel are the key to all the rest of the prophecies. True principles of interpretation in regard to them will aid us in disentangling and illustrating all prophecy together. False principles as to these prophecies on Israel will most thoroughly perplex and overcloud the whole word of God. You got to get the prophecies on Israel right. If you don't, that's going to mess with not only your eschatology, also your ecclesiology and many other doctrines when it comes to the attributes of God. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the first six verses today and see how Paul starts to answer this question. The question started in 9.6. He gave some answers. He restates it slightly differently here in 11.1. The question is, has God rejected Israel? So I'm going to break this down into three points. Well, first we'll look at the question, then we'll look at the answer Paul gives, and then we'll look at the proof. So first of all, the question, has God abandoned his promises to Israel? That's what it means to reject Israel. Has God abandoned his promises that he made in the Old Testament to Israel? Because if he has, then he's rejected them. So he starts off by saying, I say then, has God rejected Israel? His people. This question is written in such a way in the original Greek that it 
expects a negative answer. It's obvious that the answer is no. Paul writes it in such a way that the original readers would have to say no because that's the way the question is written. God has not rejected his people. The present unbelieving nation of Israel, has he? It's kind of the idea there. God is not, has he? The word rejected means to put aside, to repudiate, to, to drive away from oneself, to chase out. To put it a different way, is God done with Israel? Has he done away with ethnic national Israel? Has he rejected them? Has he abandoned them? Has he chased them away from his presence to never be part of his purposes again? Now notice it says his people. This is the key right here. We have to understand who his people are. If we get this wrong, the rest of the chapter will be interpreted wrongly. We must get this right to understand this chapter. If we go wrong here, the chapter is going to be twisted out of context. Clearly, this is ethnic Israel. Clearly, this is ethnic Israel. No one I read, of all the commentaries I read, from the most reformed to the dispensational and all between, doubt that this verse is talking about Israel. Ethnic, national Israel. Why do we know that? How do we know this is the whole nation of people, Israel, which in Paul's day and today is currently in unbelief? Well, look at verse 21 of chapter 10. For as for Israel... He says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to disobedient and obstinate people. It's clear right there. He's speaking of the whole nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, those descended physically from Abraham and the majority of which do not believe they're disobedient. They're obstinate. And the word obstinate there has to do not just with being stubborn, but speaking against the gospel. And the very next verse, still in the context of this section 9 to 11, speaking of ethnic Israel, He says, I say then, has God rejected his people? He's not talking about Gentiles. He's not talking about believers, Jew and Gentile. He's not talking about the church in verse 21 of chapter 10. He's talking about ethnic national Israel. They have rejected the Messiah. They're obstinate. They're disobedient. And so does that mean God has rejected them? We'll come back to that. That's the question of the sermon today. But let's continue tracing this theme throughout this chapter. Who is, who are his people? Who is This Israel being discussed. Look at chapter 11, verse 7. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But the chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Again, talking about Israel here. The ethnic, national Israel. Again, look at verse 11. I say then, did they, that's Israel, did they stumble so as to fall? May it never be. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. To make them jealous. So clearly he's talking about ethnic national Israel. Everybody else are considered the Gentiles, the nations. And he's saying that Israel stumbled, but not so much as to fall forever. May it never be this happened so that salvation would come to the Gentiles. Now I just read to you verses 25 and 26. There again, he's talking about Israel. He contrasts it with the Gentiles. At the end of verse 25, hardening has happened to Israel. Verse 26, so all Israel will be saved. This is speaking of ethnic national Israel. The Israelites. That's what Paul's about to get into. He is an Israelite. Ethnic national Israel. Keep that in mind as we go throughout chapter 11. Because we can't suddenly change gears into reverse 
if Paul has a context of ethnic national Israel. So what about Israel is the question. Has God rejected them? God elected them in the Old Testament, the, the, the studious Jew would think, and even the Gentile who studied the Old Testament. God chose them. They were chosen by God, and yet now they seem to be set aside. They're, they're not believing in Christ. They've been judged. Their city has been destroyed multiple times. Did God fail to keep his promises to Israel? How can you say, Paul, that God is faithful to his elect when his promises to Israel in the Old Testament are not being fulfilled now? That's why this question is important to us. We need to get this right because the whole reason it's in Romans is because at the end of chapter 8 of Romans, speaking to everyone, all the Jews and Gentiles, believers in the church, he says that God will never let you fall out of his hands. That once you're in Christ, that once you have the Holy Spirit, you will be forever in Christ. You can't lose your salvation. And he goes over and over and over that in Romans 8 in different ways. And that's such a beautiful chapter. We love Romans 8. But it comes up after we get done with Romans 8. The objector anyway is saying, hey, Paul, what about Israel? You give us all these promises that God gives the believer, especially these Gentile believers who are in Rome. But what about Israel? Doesn't look like they're receiving these promises. They're not even believing in Christ. And so Paul spends three chapters in Romans to answer this question. Has God rejected Israel? If he has, that could bring into question, and it does, God's promises. God hasn't abandoned Israel, is going to be his answer. God hasn't abandoned Israel. But if he has, let's say, how do we know he won't abandon us? If we start believing that God has completely abandoned his promises, how do we know that he won't keep his promises to us? This is crucial to understand here. And it also touches on an attribute of God called faithfulness. Is God going to be faithful to his promises, to himself? And if we start calling God's promises into question, we're ultimately calling God into question. If God has rejected or replaced or been done with unbelieving ethnic Israel now, in the letter would be time for Paul to tell us. This is a perfect opportunity. All he has to say is, sure, yeah. They're obstinate, they're disobedient. God's done with them. But he doesn't say that, does he? Instead, he doesn't say anything like that. He says a very, very loud no. Let's look at the next point, the answer. And we'll spend some time on this answer. And really, the answer goes all the way through this chapter. But the answer here is, it is impossible that God would be unfaithful. It is impossible. God can't be unfaithful to himself. God can't be unfaithful to his promises. No matter the questions that we as Christians might have about all this, there's one thing we must know for certain. God cannot be unfaithful to himself. God can't be unfaithful to us either. But first, it starts with himself. And because of that, God cannot be unfaithful to Israel because he made promises. So instead of saying, yes, God has rejected Israel, Paul says, may it never be. This is the strongest way to say anything in Koine Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in. You can't say it any stronger than this. 
May it never be. He already has used this multiple times in this letter. Most recently in Romans 9, 14. May it never be. It's like saying certainly not. Or in the King James, God forbid. The idea is may it never, ever, 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 ever be possible that God would not be faithful. It's never possible. Barry Horner expands the translation here. He says it's like saying, surely not no, a thousand times no. In other words, Paul's not going to tolerate any other answer. This is the only answer there is. May it never be. That's the answer. In fact, it's a way of just throwing out the other possibilities completely. Completely throwing them out. He will explain more about his answer, but there's no other answer to give. It's not possible. Israel has not been ultimately abandoned by God. It may appear so in Paul's day and today, but ultimately he's going to explain God has not abandoned Israel, which means his word has not failed to Israel. God's promises never fail. God's promises never fail. Do we one day wake up and say, you know, my friend who has been a good faithful Christian for so long has fallen into sin. And God is now going to abandon them. God is now going to reject them. Even though he promised he wouldn't, now he's going to. We don't do that. We don't do that with someone God has chosen individually. Why would we do that with the nation? Why would we think that with the nation God has chosen as a nation? The grass withers, the Bible says, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Isaiah 31.2 says, he does not turn his words aside. Isaiah 55.11, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God is not a man that he should lie, Numbers 23.19, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said... And will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not establish it? Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, completely rejects any other answer here and says, may it never be. But as a good teacher, he explains that answer. He doesn't just say it and then leave us there. He explains it. You know, in my research for this, I read all these commentaries and they were all agreeing this is about ethnic Israel and that all Israel would be saved, but we'll get there in the coming weeks. And I thought, I've got to get somewhere out there where people disagree because I've heard a lot of other views. It's not from any of the scholars I'm reading or the theologians. So I pulled up a pastor who's known somewhat on the internet and he spent 59 minutes trying to answer this question. He never answered it. He went all around Romans 11, but never touched on Romans 11, especially this question right here, which addresses it. Then I pulled up R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur at Ligonier Conference 2012. And in 25 seconds, they both answered it very quickly. It would be like Paul saying, may it never be. That's it. We're done. And that's what Sproul says. You know, he says all Israel will be saved means all Israel will be saved. John MacArthur comments and everybody laughs and it's done. 25 seconds. Too many people are all over trying to answer this question. But here it is right here. Here's the answer. May it never be. Now he starts to explain his answer. For I too am an Israelite. So he starts with himself. He's going to branch out eventually to cover the whole nation here. But he says, I too am an Israelite. 
And notice it's present tense. It's not past tense. He doesn't say, I was an Israelite, then I got saved, no longer an Israelite. And he uses the word Israelite, not Jew, because in this section, he's talking about Israel as a nation. Other times he'll use the term Jew in Romans even, and in other letters, because he's talking more about the, the customs or the law or the different ways that the Jews practice or what they believe. But here he's talking about ethnic Israel. He says, I'm one of them. In fact, if you go back to 9.3, he did the same thing there. Chapter 9, verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers. They're my kinsmen, he says, according to the flesh. Who are these kinsmen? Well, they are, present tense, Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons. His ethnic identity is an Israelite. Yes, he's saved. Yes, he's been redeemed. Yes, he's a Christian. Yes, he's in the church. But his ethnic identity is still, he says, as an Israelite. The fact that Paul's an Israelite who has been saved is proof that God's not finished with Israel. Now, he's starting with the the small answer here. Again, he's going to expand it as this chapter goes on. But he says, first of all, I'm an Israelite and I've been saved. God's not broken his promises because there's at least one remnant, Paul. And he says, just to remind you, he's a seed of Abraham. I love the LSB because it always translates seed here literally. So you can trace that theology from all the way from Genesis 3 all the way through the end of the Bible. The seed theology. He is a physical descendant of Abraham. Yes, there are spiritual descendants of Abraham. Gentiles who believe are spiritual descendants of Abraham. Here it's clear from the context, Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. He's talking about a physical seed of Abraham. This is important because God made a covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12, if you want to go there, Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And later he'll, he'll cut the covenant with a sacrifice. But God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1, Yahweh said to Abram, before his name was even changed to Abraham, to Abram, go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Three promises. There's going to be a physical offspring. Abraham is going to have many descendants. There are going to be so many. It's like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. There's a land promise there. And then there's a worldwide blessing. A worldwide blessing. Now with the the physical descendants, there's this talk of blessing and cursing. We don't want to curse Israel because God says he will curse those people. But there's a land promise and a worldwide blessing that comes through Christ, the Messiah, a physical descendant of Abraham. So did God set these promises aside that he made to Abraham when Christ comes and a majority of Jews don't believe? Paul says, no, first of all, I'm a Christian. I believe And I'm an Israelite, and I came from Abraham. Remember the the covenant God made with Abraham is what he's getting at here? In other words, these were promises. This was a covenant. And it's not conditioned upon Israel's obedience. You can read Genesis 12, go to Genesis 15 later. You won't find anything about conditions. This is what God's going to do. This is what God's going to do. It's just like the new covenant. The new covenant that we as Gentiles receive the blessings of, it's unconditional. You can say, well, faith. 
faith. That's the gospel. You have to believe in, you have to believe in Christ to be saved. And then the blessings of the new covenant get applied to you. But God never says that's a condition. No, it's unconditional. These are the things God will do for his people. To Abraham, to Abraham's descendants. And in the new covenant, it's just a continuation, really. An expansion of the Abrahamic covenant. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. God saves us. But he doesn't just save us and throw us out every time we sin as Christians, does he? He remains faithful always. Paul continues. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. If you want to get really specific, I am present tense, an Israelite. I am, of course, from the seed of Abraham. And I am of the tribe of Benjamin. Where the first king of Israel came from. Benjamin also shared Jerusalem with Judah. One of the southern tribes, which were more faithful to God over time. With Judah, of course, in the kingdom of Judah. Paul says, look, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. And God saved me. Now he makes it more theological in verse 2. So he gave his personal answer. And it's not wrong sometimes to use our testimony. Don't stop there, though. Don't just tell people your testimony when they, when they question the gospel or when they question salvation. Back it up with biblical teaching. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Probably tying back to many Old Testament passages that deal with this. God has not rejected his people. Because he, he foreknew them. How could that be possible? Foreknew means to know beforehand. And not to know that they would be saved. Not to know that he would do something in the future. No, this means to choose beforehand. We saw this same word back in Romans 8, 29. This word in the Bible doesn't mean that God looked ahead in time and learned something. God's never learned anything. God knows it all already. Things happen in time because God decreed them to happen. He doesn't wait around saying, well, I wonder if he's going to be saved and she's going to be saved. And I wonder if they'll believe. I wonder someday maybe this will happen or that will happen in history. No, God decrees all that will come to pass. And so in doing that, he chooses beforehand who he will set his love on. This makes no sense if we try to translate it in our modern thinking as to God just knew beforehand. No, he didn't just know. He decreed it would happen. He chose. This is predestination language. God does not look forward in time to see what the individual will do or even what the nation of Israel will do. Rather, God foredains all things that happen. And in doing that, he chose to put his electing love on Israel. Now, at this point, even though in verse 1, everybody agrees my, that his people is Israel. At this point, some say, well, foreknew is predestination. Therefore, he must be talking about what was mentioned in Romans 8, Romans 9, with believers only. Not the nation of Israel, but believers inside of Israel. I think the better option, of course, is that it's the nation of Israel as a whole. It's the nation of Israel as a whole. This foreknew is an electing of a nation to put his love on. It does not speak to the fact that every Jew would be saved. 
God never promises that. In fact, Romans 9 is all about that, isn't it? Isn't Romans 9 all about the fact that God didn't save every Jew that's ever existed because he didn't choose every Jew that's ever existed? Look very closely. His people in verse 2, his people in verse 1. The context doesn't change. It's still the same context. It's the exact same phrase, his people. The nation of Israel as a whole. Speaking of national election. You know, people try to fit corporate election into chapter 9 of Romans. There he's talking about an individual election. Here, based on the context, of course, he's talking about national election. There's only one nation God ever chose. Sorry, he didn't choose America or Texas. Obviously, they were all part of his foreordained plan. There's nothing in the Bible that he said his special love on Texas or U.S., even though we want to believe that sometimes. Israel's the only nation that God ever said was his elect. Go to Deuteronomy. Let's look at three verses. These are key verses, so I encourage you to turn there. Deuteronomy 7. And it's important not only that we understand God chose them, but why he chose them, or we could say why he did not choose them. The reasons that he chose them are not the same reasons we often think of. It certainly wasn't because of their holiness, their godliness. He makes that clear here. Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6. For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. We can't say that God chose the Hittites. We can't say that God chose the Babylonians. Yes, he saves individuals out of all nations now. But he chose as a nation Israel as his treasured possession. Verse 7 Yahweh did not set his affection on you, nor choose you because you are more in number than any other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. He did not choose them because of how great they were, because of anything they did, because of their works, because of their mightiness. He chose them because of his grace. That's the answer that we have here. Verse 8, but because Yahweh loved you, and he kept the oath, the oath, the promise which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Abrahamic covenant, which he also recites to Isaac and Jacob. Down that line. God loved you and he kept the promise that he gave to your fathers. Let's go to Amos 3.2. And if you pass Jeremiah, hold your bookmark in Jeremiah 31. But Amos 3.2. Go to the minor prophets. Hosea is the first one, then Amos. Or Joel. Hosea is Joel, Amos. Amos is in the beginning there of the minor prophets. Amos 3, 2. You only have I known among all the families of the earth. This doesn't mean God doesn't know about the other nations that existed at the time of Amos. It doesn't mean God's lacking in some knowledge. The knowing here is a loving relationship with. Like Adam knew his wife. He didn't suddenly say, oh, there you are, Eve. I know you. No, it's the intimate relationship, the physical case with Adam and Eve. But here, God's spiritual relationship, love. You only have I known among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. But it's only Israel that he has that kind of relationship with as a nation. Not that everybody would believe. In fact, you read the book of Amos and you'll see not every Israelite is believing when God says this. Now let's go back to Jeremiah. A larger passage here in Jeremiah 31, 
35. He's just talked about the new covenant. That God is going to forgive them of their iniquity. He's going to wash them clean. He's going to do all these things. He's going to put their law in their, in their heart, his law in their heart. Write it upon their heart even. And then verse 35. Thus says Yahweh. Thus says the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Whenever that's there, the prophet is saying, pay attention. God said this very clearly. Who gives the sun for light by day. And the statutes for the moon and the stars for light by night. Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. The prophet here is reminding us how powerful God is. God did all these things. He said everything where it is in the heavens. Everything just like he wanted. Of these statutes. If these statutes are removed. What statutes? The statutes of the new covenant. Given originally to Israel. If these statutes are removed from before me, declares Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. In other words, the only way Israel is not going to be a nation anymore at all forever is if you change all the things that God has created. In other words, if, if the creation just falls apart, then you know God's not real. You can't trust him. But the idea is, of course, it doesn't fall apart. It's all right there. He set all these things in the heavens. Look at verse 37. Thus says Yahweh, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also reject all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, declares Yahweh. He knows what they've done. And he says, I'll reject the whole nation if you can go measure all that exists in the universe. It's not possible. As scientific as we are, there's no way we're going to do that. No way. God said, that's the only way he could reject Israel. It's, it's hyperbole to make a point. God is not going to abandon his people. God's promises are before the foundation of the world. Again, Paul's using the word for no, for new, because this is predetermined, preordained, before the foundation of the world. If God made a promise before the foundation of the world, it's irreversible. All of God's promises are, but the fact that it was before the foundation of the world puts more emphasis there. It's irrevocable. It's irreversible. It cannot be canceled. It cannot be called back. It will stand. Again, this does not mean every Jew throughout history was or will be saved. But it does mean that God has chosen Israel for his purposes. And his purposes, Gentile, as we're going to see, is to use Israel ultimately to save the Gentiles, and then he's going to turn around and save all Israel on the last day. John Murray, the Reformed professor at Westminster back in the day, the Reformed guy, just known as the professor, he said, there should be no difficulty in recognizing the appropriateness of calling Israel the people whom God foreknew. Israel had been elected and peculiarly loved and thus distinguish from all other nations. So that's Paul's answer. Very strongly, it's impossible that God would be unfaithful. Now he backs that up with a proof. And we know Paul loves this, especially in this section. He's talking about Israel. He's quoting from the Old Testament as much as possible. And so he's going to give a proof. God currently has reserved a remnant. That's what the proof shows. That God currently has reserved a remnant. Yes, 
Not all Israel is being saved right now, but there is a remnant. And that remnant is like a down payment on what is to come. He says, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? Do you not know? Do you not know your Bibles, Christians, is what he's saying here. He's saying, come on, don't you know your Bibles? And in Elijah means the passage about Elijah. Don't you know in that passage about Elijah from 1 Kings, how he appeals to God against Israel? How he appeals to God and basically wants God to to take out Israel because there's no one left but him? We're done. You know, Elijah says, we're done. I'm the only one left. And now in verse 3, he quotes that. It's from 1 Kings 19.10 and 19.14. We won't go there, but just to give you the context, Elijah has had a showdown with all the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal were ruling the religious sphere in the northern kingdom because the king and queen of the north wanted them to. They, they were pagan worshipers and they wanted the people to be pagan worshipers and they allowed these prophets to worship idols and to build false altars. And so Elijah has this big showdown where 450 come and that's where he says, you know, you call upon your God to burn this wet wood and I'll call upon my God. And of course, nothing happens to their pile of sticks and theirs isn't even wet. Only Elijah's is wet and, and nothing happens. It doesn't catch fire from heaven. And he says, well, maybe your God's in the bathroom. Maybe your God is, you know, out there. He fell asleep somewhere in a cave or something, you know. And then, of course, the fire comes down and God sends fire from heaven and it burns up Elijah's wood. And then he calls on Israel. Okay, this is proof. Let's get those prophets and give them the death penalty because they're false prophets. And according to the Old Testament law, you are to punish them with the death penalty. Then this drought that had been on the land for a long time is relieved. Elijah then runs away because he knows that Queen Jezebel, who really proliferated all this false teaching and false belief, she's going to come after him. Yes, Elijah won the day, but he knows it won't be long before Jezebel finds him and kills him. So he flees. He flees her wrath. He goes to Mount Sinai. He hides in a cave. He feels all alone. He gets depressed. He says, I'm the only one left. There's no one else around that believes in you, Lord. And he receives miraculous provision from God. Yet again, he gets depressed again. And all of Israel seems completely lost. God has intervened. God has brought miraculously provided food for him. And yet he still complains. He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. That's all true. But this last one's not. I alone am left. Now, I think he really thought that. It's not that he's making that up. He, he really believed. It's just him. I'm the only true person that believes and truly has faith in the Lord. And he says, they are seeking my life. I'm the only one left, Lord, and they're trying to kill me. Now, Paul says, look, here's what God said. But what does the divine response say to him in verse 4? What's the divine response here? What is it? God says, I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000, even larger if we include the women and children. These are 7,000 men, but women and children would make even more. God has left a remnant is the idea. There are some. There are more than you think, Elijah, that believe. Stop laying around moping and being depressed about this. God is taking care of things. There's a remnant. A remnant. Even in the northern kingdom that is turned away from the Lord, there is a remnant. It's not a lot compared to the whole nation, but there are those 
who believe. And so God is reminding him and is really rebuking him in a sense. And notice it says, I've left for myself. God in his sovereignty had taken away many people. He had taken away unbelievers and had them kill the, the 450 prophets that were false prophets. He had removed believers over time that were killed by Queen Jezebel. But he says, I've left. I've left on the earth. I've left in the kingdom of Israel. I've left some that are for me. And not just on God's side. No, God has chosen these 7,000 and put them there for his remnant to continue on. God left some on the earth in Israel for himself. I like what Martin Luther says here. He does not say when they were all cast away, 7,000 men were left over. Or when Nebuchadnezzar and the, or the devil took them away, he left me 7,000 men. But I myself kept them back, God says. I who took them and others away have left these. Not by accident. It's not by the 7,000. There's nothing about the 7,000 being so godly and so great. They were true prophets of God, but the emphasis here is on God who did this. God knows what he's doing. God chose the 7,000. Here's how Paul applies it in verse 5. In this way then, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice has also come to be. Paul's first said, I, I'm saved. And there's also more than me that are from Israel that have been saved at this present time. And today is the same. He's making an analogy here like he often does here with scripture. As in the days of Elijah, so now. He loves to quote the Old Testament and do this. It, it makes theologians and, and Christians even struggle here. But this one's a little easier than the previous ones in Romans 10, where he makes these analogies. But he's saying, just like in Elijah's day, today we have a remnant of believing Israel. A remnant. And the remnant doesn't just mean that God is saving some, of course. But the remnant is something pointing to a greater salvation to come. The remnant is an earnest payment. It's a foretaste of things to come. It's a down payment. This remnant pledge of God's continuing faithfulness to Israel and the promises he has made to Israel is an encouragement that God will save even more. And verse 6, he wraps it up like this. But if it is by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. 7,000, they did nothing. They did nothing to earn God's grace. God graciously chose them and left them there. Today, in Paul's day, the Jews who are saved, it's not just because they're Jewish. God chose them to carry out his promises. And so he has saved that remnant in Paul's day all the way through today for a reason. To point forward to what he is going to do. Yes, he, he calls them as his people to praise and worship him. But another purpose, a purpose that he's working out throughout history, is that eventually all Israel will be saved. And it's not because of their works. It's not because they obeyed the law. When we get down to, to 1126, it won't be in the last day when all Israel is saved because they're so good, because they're so righteous. No, it's God's grace. It's not according to works. God's grace is no longer grace if it's according to works. If you're saved, it's not because you did anything. It's not because who your parents were. 
It's not because you were so good. It's because God saves by his grace. He chooses to elect individuals and save them. He chose to elect one nation and work through them to bring about salvation to the whole world. We have to get this right. We have to understand this. It helps us know more about God and what he's doing in this world. Back to Horatius Bonar here, that Scottish Presbyterian. He wrote some hymns, and he wrote a hymn about this passage. Now, I don't know why people don't sing it. It's probably hard to sing, but I just want to read it to you. Horatius Bonar, forgotten, no, that cannot be. All other names may pass away, but thine, my Israel, shall remain in everlasting memory. Forgotten, no, that cannot be. Inscribed upon my palms thou art. The name I gave in days of old is graven still upon my heart. Forgotten, no, that cannot be. Beloved of thy God art thou. His crown forever on thy head. His name forever on thy brow. Forgotten, no, that cannot be. Sun, moon, and stars may cease to shine, but thou shalt be remembered still. For thou art his, and he is thine. God is faithful. God keeps his promises. Remember that. And he will do it for the nation of Israel. And he will do it for you, Gentile believer. God is faithful. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We would be lost without it. You are truly the God, the only true God, and the only one that is completely faithful. So we thank you for that, Lord. We ask that we might interpret Scripture rightly, believe all that it says, and that we might praise and glorify you for who you are. Ultimately, this passage is about you, God. Thank you for putting it in the book of Romans. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us today. In Jesus' name, we pray this. Amen.